0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. I'll have you turn your Bibles to Psalm 119. Pastor Brad is away at a conference this week up in New York City. That's why he's not here this morning. I have the privilege of preaching to you. Um, It's always an encouragement to be able to uh, open the Word of God and be able to preach. Um, I want to encourage you with what uh, David writes here. I asked Pastor Brad if there was one psalm that he isn't going to get to. We're teaching through the psalms in um, the summer, and he said Psalm 119. And I said, thank you. That's 176 verses. And so if I have you stand as I read you'll forgive me, but I'm not going to do that, all right? Not this morning. We're not even going to touch the whole of the psalm. We're just going to deal with uh, some of the very uh, preliminary ideas of what this psalm entails because it's a huge encouragement, and I want it to be an encouragement to you. By the way, if you did come in uh, late thinking you were early, we did change our church church times um, to 1045 from 11. So if you thought you were getting here early and you stepped in and there was a song going on, that's, that's probably why you didn't um, and that's okay. One of our long-term members came to me and said, I thought we were still at 11 o'clock. So um, don't feel bad uh, for coming in, but just make note of that. Um, Derek Kidner, one of uh, our favorite commentators on the Psalms, said this about Psalm 119. He said, giant, this is a giant among the Psalms, both for its content and its length. Certainly, when you uh, turn to, to uh, Psalm 19 or 119, you are confronted with just how many verses there really are. And quite often is the case, you're just wondering, how am I going to grasp what's in front of me? So that's what we want to do this morning. I want to encourage you with some thoughts about this text. What's interesting, first off, is that Psalm 119 sits almost dead center in your Bible. So why is it dead center in your Bible? Well, on either end of the Bible, we have some interesting Parallels. One is the beginning of time in Genesis, and in Revelation, we have the end of time. And so all of time, we can say, rests on its pivot point, the central point, which is Psalm 119. So why is this Psalm the pivot point? Well, it's a good pivot point because its theme is God's perfect word. And David knew that God's perfect word was central to his life. It was the fulcrum from which all time rests, or at least him. And so what he wanted to do is he wanted to make much of God's word. In our fallen Adamic nature, we are tending, or we tend to make less of God's word than we should. And so when we're confronted with 176 verses with the same theme, talking about God's word, we are struck with its importance. The first thing you'll notice in Psalm 119 is, that there are 22 different sections corresponding to one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. He begins at the beginning, Aleph, Beth, Himel, and then he goes all the way through the Hebrew alphabet to the end. So there's 22 sections made up of eight verses. Those eight verses carry eight different, um, eight to ten different uh, synonyms referring to the Word of God. So some of these words are law, testimonies, His ways, precepts, statutes, commandments, and rules. Those aren't different words. Those are synonyms referring to God's word. So when we're struck with the length and then we're struck with the redundancy or the seeming redundancy of Psalm 119, we can kind of zone out. And we kind of think, well, I got this already. But I want to give you a warning because uh, uh, there is a warning here. Do not zone out. As Charles Spurgeon said this, many superficial readers have imagined That Psalm 119 harps upon one string and abounds in pious repetitions and redundancies. But this arises from the shallowness of the reader's own mind. Those who have studied this divine hymn and carefully note each line of it are amazed at the variety and profundity of the thought. I want you to let that set in. Let's not approach Psalm 119 because of its length or redundancy with a shallowness of thinking. But let's look for contrasts and parallels and differences. David's point here, I think, in writing this text was that his life centered on the Word of God. And by extension, all of our lives center on the Word of God. The Word of God is what called us into existence. If you remember back in Genesis, God spoke and it came to be, God spoke and there was light. God's Word initiated all of creation. He spoke and a million galaxies came into existence. God's Word is powerful. It's demonstrative. It's tangible. Jesus is called the Word of God in the Gospels. In John 1.1 1, 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh. So we're talking about a person here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus said this of himself in Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God created Jesus sustains, and he also saves through his word. Romans ten seventeen says this, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. At the end of the Bible, we find in Revelation 22, this text, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. So at the beginning... And at the end, we find the emphasis of the Word of God and Jesus Christ being the center point of that Word. So we are blessed, as the psalmist says in verses 1 and 2. We are blessed to walk in the law of the Lord. And this is the important part about our walk with God is that it's very simple. But sometimes we make it complicated, and sometimes life complicates it. I'm going to go so far as to say sometimes our own sin complicates it. That's what I want to encourage you with this morning. When you look at Psalm 119, it's daunting, it's big, it's a lot of verses, but I want you to see the progression. I read through this psalm, many of you have read through the psalm, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I noticed it as I was reading through preparation for this sermon, that this almost reads like a testimony of someone's life. It's not as if David wrote this at one point in his life at one day. It's almost like he wrote it over the course of his life. And then as I was reading Charles Spurgeon's commentary, I read this com- comment, which is very interesting. He said, in our youth, our teacher called Psalm 119 David's pocketbook. And we inclined to the opinion, then expressed, that here we have the royal diary written at various times throughout a long I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. A royal diary written at various times throughout a long life. So what we would expect to find under Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, is kind of the genesis of David's faith, the beginning point of David's faith. And when you think about it, if you can think back to when you were saved, how wonderful an experience that was. For the first time in your life, you realize that God forgave you of your sin. That Jesus hung on the cross not for his own fame, but that you, and so that you could have peace with God and live with him for eternity. And that kind of settles in upon you as you first come to faith. And there's a radiant glory that comes over you, and there's a resolve to follow God's word. And it's almost as if the sun is shining brighter, the birds are chirping louder. It's almost like life is just wonderful. So that's kind of the perspective that we have here in the first eight verses. But I want to give you this warning before I go through those verses. I want to say this. Your resolve, so if you have a pen and you have paper, you can write this down. Your resolve to follow God's word and your knowledge of God's word does not prevent you from wandering away from God. Let me say that again. Your resolve to follow God's word and your knowledge of God's word does not prevent you from wandering away from God. So as we start at the beginning of David's faith walk, if you will, we find a very victorious kind of language. Almost a resolve here to follow God's law. And then as we progress through the psalm, we find that the different trials and temptations that overtake David lead to a very different set of verses when you look at the end of the psalm. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to contrast the beginning with the end. And I hope to show you a different perspective. So the first perspective is that of the new faith. New faith perspective. That's in verses 1 through 8. And then in verses 169 through 176, we have a mature faith perspective. Both are right, both are true, both are glorious. And yet we have to understand both. Otherwise, we will stumble in our understanding of who we are in light of God. So let's take a look at the new faith perspective. David begins in verses one through eight. And before I read those verses, I just want to say this. Again, it starts at the beginning of a a life of walking with God. And in so, it becomes kind of like this anthem of the faith. It can be divided into two parts, verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 8. 1 through 4 uses a different set of pronouns, those, who, as opposed to, and I would say that's the third person plural, general truth, blessed are those who follow after God, blessed are those, blessed are them, blessed are all of them, blessed are all of those and then verses five through eight uses the very personal pronoun, the first person, my and I. So what David does, he changes the camera's perspective, or if you will, the perspective of how he's looking at things. When I was a kid, we, uh, I grew up in Endicott, New York. Does anybody know where Endicott, New York is? All right. One person. All right. That's what I would expect. All right. Um, so outside of Binghamton, New York, there's this little village called Endicott, New York. This is where my dad passed our church. But our house had a front door with a side light next to it. So there were five or six panels of lights, of glass that went alongside the front door. And I was always mesmerized as a little kid, three, four, five years old. I would stare at the sun as it came through the light, the side lights there. And I'd watch that beam and I would see the dust kind of go through the beam. You've all seen that stuff. Just kind of flow through, and you could run your hand through it, and the dust would just kind of swirl. Right? That's kind of like verses one through four. David's kind of standing outside the Word of God, making judgments on it. But then I would also sit on the staircase that sat opposite of those windows, and as the sun was coming in, I no longer saw the dust because I was just enveloped in the light. And so that's like verses five through eight. David changes position. He puts himself in the light. That's why the pronouns change. So let's read this and with that in mind, uh, those two sections. The first section is God's um, a heavenly standard for a blessed life. And then the second section, verses 5 through 8, is the human experience of a blessed life. So let's look at that. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. If you notice in verses one through four, you have a universal kind of anthem truth about God's word. Blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. That's not very unique. Verse one of chapter one of Psalm says the same thing. Blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those. Contented are those. At peace are those. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be at peace? Do you want to be a contented person? Do you want to be settled in spirit? That's what that word blessed means. Blessed are those who, whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed happy, contented, joyful are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. These are high platitudes of a pious observation. I think you would agree. Who keeps the whole law? Right? Who seeks God with their whole heart? We're confronted with this platitude and we're... We're somewhat struck with the impossibility of it. Verse 3, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. The ultimately happiest man on earth is probably the person who will never sin. We can say that, right? So really, if you were thinking of it logically, Jesus would be the happiest person who ever walked the face of the earth. But this is written to us as well. The word of God is important, but it should not usurp our understanding of the ultimate message that is a person. So, verse 2 David reminds us of this. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him, who seek him. That's a person. That's a person. I'm going to say this, hopefully you understand it. Scripture is not about the words, but about what the words are pointing to. David knew that these words pointed him back to the person. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. When you come to faith, you are immediately confronted with the beauty of Jesus Christ. Not necessarily are you enamored with the word of God. Because Jesus is the word of God. So I think it's important to recognize that nuance. When you came to faith, you probably knew very little of the word of God. What thrills your heart about salvation is the person, Jesus Christ, and what he did for you. common to make our Christian experience a lot about the Bible and not enough about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it's hard to imagine, but it happens all the time that the Word of God usurps the person of Jesus and whom the Word speaks. When this happens, our reading and our relationship grows stale and listless. Who is this Jesus you serve? Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do the words of Scripture get in the way of the person of Jesus? Maybe some weird questions maybe to ask. But I will say this. There was a, a book written recently. Uh, many of you have read it. Maybe you've read parts of it. Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Orton. Good book. But it illustrates my point. He writes a book about the person of Jesus Christ coming straight from Scripture and everybody reads it and says, oh, it's so good. (laughs) All he's doing is he's pulling out from Scripture what's already there. I think sometimes we read Scripture without really reading it. So It's helpful to have somebody come along and write a book like that. Kind of point out some of the obvious things. One of the great Quotes I like uh, in this book is this one. "Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. It's a great quote, but the book is made up of quotes like that and not just quotes, truths that come from Scripture that teach you about Jesus. Now, I'm going to kind of talk out of both sides of my mouth here because uh, it is the word of God that teaches you about Jesus. So you can't say I'm seeking after Jesus if you are not in the word of God. Connection is not contrived, it's natural. So you cannot say you are in pursuit of the Lord if you're not in practice of reading Scripture. How much time do you spend reading Scripture? That should be convicting for many of us because we are doing less than what we know to do. And then oftentimes we do more and then other times we do less This is convicting. For David, it wasn't enough just to know this about the word. He had to internalize it, and that's the beauty of the word. You can internalize this. Look at verses 5 through 8. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. He saw the connection between his own success and the word of God. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed upon all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your, your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. See, for David in verse 7, the word of God and the experience with God should evoke praise. I will praise you. All of this should evoke praise. Your reading in the morning, if you do reading in the morning, should evoke praise of God. So I want to say this. Scripture is not a tool to make your life better. Scripture's not a tool that you can use to make your life better. We use this phrase, what did you get out of your devotions this morning? What does that mean? What did you get out of your devotions? For David, that would have carried maybe a different meaning than for us today. If we think of it, we think, what truth did I learn about God that kind of manifested itself in a feeling Or an emotion. And if there was no emotion, then we say, I didn't get much out of my reading this morning. For David, praise was fixed to truth. It was objective truth. It was not necessarily tied to emotion. I'm not saying emotion isn't a part of it sometimes, but I'm saying if we lean in on emotion... And if it's not there, it won't always be there, can we still praise God? And the answer is yes. Because what praise means is to attribute to God what he says about himself. It's objective truth. And so we don't need to be caught up in this idea of an emotional response in return for the amount of time that we put in. Then we got to be careful when we come to a service like this that we're not trying to evoke an emotional feeling. I'm not against emotions. God created emotions and they are good and they do work to help us understand God. But I just think that sometimes we approach scripture with this idea that if we put a pound of effort in, we expect a pound and a half of emotional blessing back out. And life isn't like that. It's mundane, it's hard, it's rough. I mean, David says in uh, in, in this psalm in verse 71, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Life is hard. Growing up, I thought scripture was like a magical incantation which you could kind of quote and memorize and would make your life better. That's like verse 11. Many of you memorized this verse as a kid uh, I'll read it out of the ESV. It says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So my thought was, if I just memorize scripture, the word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. The key to not sinning is memorizing God's word. Well, guess what you find out? You memorize God's word and what happens? You keep sinning. David understood that the experience of godliness was all about a life not a moment a life that was David's perspective as a a a new believer if you will very optimistic I will keep your statutes I will praise you I will not be put to shame my ways will be steadfast that's kind of like the resolve that we have when we come to faith let's contrast that then with the end of David's life. So go to the last section of Psalm 119 with me, starting in verse 169. In this section, I want you to see the difference in tone. David has gone through his life. He has faced the trials of enemies. If you think back to the enemies that David had, Saul wanted to kill him. Absalom wanted to dethrone him, if not kill him. His own wife wanted to disown him. Not only that, he had the Philistines that wanted to destroy him. David always had enemies. He was always seemingly running from somebody. But David's greatest enemy was not from without. It was from within. His own heart was his greatest enemy. If you think back to the number of sins that he committed... Here is a man of God's own heart and he commits murder as an adulterous affair. Baby out of wedlock. He counts and numbers Israel, which was forbidden, bringing devastation upon himself and Israel. David had walked the road that we all walk, the broken road to salvation. And yet, Oftentimes, it's easy to think that some glorious path has been laid out for us to walk to to the point where we see Jesus. It's not true with David. It's not going to be true with you. You are prone to wander. Lord, you feel it. I feel it. This is the mature perspective here. So let's look at verses uh, 169 through 176. Let my cry. Come before you, O Lord. So all, automatically we see a difference. Instead of this, I will keep your word. I will do this. I will do this. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour, pour forth praise. For you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing your word. For your, all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me. For I've chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. Now look at how he ends. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your testimonies. Huh. It's a very interesting juxtaposition there between verses 174 and 176. In one sense, he says in 174, your law is my delight. In 176, for I do not forget your commandment. And then in between that, he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. We know David went astray. I just enumerated that for you. David was... Born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, as Job says. And so how do you make sense of these phrases? How does David say, your law is my delight, I do not forget your commandments, but then at the same time I have gone astray? It's confusing, isn't it? It should be confusing. If you didn't know the word of God, but we do. So I think what he's pointing to is the overarching reality that we have a sin nature that lives with a glorious, redeemed spirit. And the two coexist until you are with the Lord, which means that the sin that you commit is an experience that you will take to the grave. I'm not trying to discourage you, and I'm not trying to give you a pass on sin. It's not what this message is about. But what I want to do is teach you that, yes, you can love the Lord, and yes, at the same time, you can struggle with the flesh. And then secondly, I don't want you to think that the struggle with the flesh will prevent you from worshiping God as you should. There's ways to deal with those Struggles with the flesh, confession being one. So, what he's teaching here is what Paul taught in Romans chapter 7. Two verses here, verse 15 and verse 21. For I do not understand my own actions. This is a redeemed person. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Have you ever felt that way? You do the very thing you hate. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Huh. You ever felt that way? You want to do what's right, but then this overwhelming sense of evil is there as well. I'll close with these ideas here, and I want to share this story with you. The 18th century English pastor, hymn writer, Robert Robertson, wrote a hymn, some of you know it, Come Thou Fount. And in that, I've already quoted some of the text, but I will quote it again. He wrote this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's a man who was saved under Whitfield. He grew quickly in his love for the Lord and his devotion to God to the point where many would give testimony that it was second only to Jonathan Edwards who lived back in the mid-1700s and it was the revivalist in the 1700s. But here's a man who was redeemed and yet he writes these words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. In that hymn, he writes these words, Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. Robertson knew the tendency to wander from God like David. And in that refrain, prone to wander, was a personal testimony for Robertson. Robertson, later in life, was a broken man. In his later years, uh, he made friends with the Unitarian preacher Joseph Priestley who rejected Christianity. He claimed that Robertson himself, near the end of his life, denied the deity of Christ, although that's not certain. By 1790, the year he died, he was physically and mentally ill. His sermons became incomprehensible and some described him as insane. He never recovered from the death of his 17-year-old daughter in 1787 and he faced a financial crisis that could have sent him to debtor's prison and many of his friends, at the end of his life, turned against him. The words that he wrote in his hymn are even more poignant. On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, Clothed then in blood-washed linen, How I'll sing thy boundless grace. On that day when freed from sinning. There's only one day that's going to come when you'll be freed from sinning. Until then, you will go on sinning. It's not to discourage you. There's ways to deal with sin. We confess. God wants us to repent. But he doesn't expect you to be perfect. You can't be perfect. There's only one person who is perfect. That's Jesus Christ. That's why you need a Messiah. Because nothing you can do will clean up your act. This is what David was saying. I love the Lord. I love your law. I haven't forgotten your commandments, but I've gone astray. And he prays this prayer, seek your servant. My friend, you're here this morning. You may consider yourself lost in some regard, but there are many of us who really have a hard time acknowledging the fact that maybe we have wandered. Maybe just a little bit. Wander from the Lord. Maybe just a little bit. You know your prayers this morning? Lord, seek your servant. Lord, come after me. As the great shepherd, I am lost. Come after me. In the last 40 to 50 years, much preaching has been spent on the sinner's response to the call of repentance, and the sinner moving toward God, here we have the exact opposite. David saying, no, let the shepherd come to me. Do you pray that way? Lord, seek me. Find me. For my heart is distant from you. It's not that I'm ignoring your law. It's not that I don't even know your law. I know it. And I, I want to delight in it, but I'm lost. It's a good, holy prayer. In closing, I'll leave you with this application. Don't let your knowledge of the Bible fool you into thinking that you are not lost. Don't let your resolve of the Bible, and following God, fool you into thinking that you are not lost. Some of you may feel this way. You know your Bible. You feel adrift spiritually. You've wandered. You said, what more is there out there for me? Eve asked the same question. She wasn't content to stay in the garden. She wanted more. And so she wandered. Second point of application, every day you should sense your need for the shepherd to rescue you. Every day. Why else would the psalmist say your mercies are new every morning? Because they have to be. If God's mercies are new, then we would be most miserable. Third point of application, acknowledge your wandering heart before the Lord. Humble yourself and pray as David did. Lord, seek after me until you find me. What an awesome prayer. We don't have time, but I wanted to share this with you. I'll leave you. This This is your homework assignment this morning. What does it look like when the shepherd finds you? What does it look like? If you pray that prayer and God says, okay, I'm going to find you, what does it look like? Go home and read Psalm 23. That's what it looks like when the shepherd finds you. You'll have provision, protection. You'll have a place to lay down in peace. Can't think of any more peas to use. but That's the glorious nature of our God. He cares for your soul and he wants to shepherd you in the midst of your constant sin. Don't say to yourself, I just can't overcome my sin because the point is you can't overcome your sin. But God can help you God doesn't want you to sin. He doesn't want to leave you in that sin. But don't stop pursuing God because of that sin. God is gracious. He's patient. He's kind. He's not trigger happy, as we read. He loves you, and he wants to bring you through that sin. He doesn't want to see you struggle. He doesn't want to see you addicted to anything. He's a good God, and he loves you. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this. Father, we know life is hard. We know that there is many opportunities for us to wander away from you in our sin. And Lord, sometimes we're ashamed to come to you. Sometimes we're embarrassed to approach you. Sometimes, Lord, we allow that embarrassment and shame to keep us from you. And, Lord, that's not good because that just means we're staying away. We're wandering even further from the fold. God, you are a loving God. You understand our weakness. David understood that you understood his weakness. And yet, Lord, he had a heart after you, and he pursued you until his death. Lord, may we do the same for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.